Um, before we go to the uh, Voice of the Martyrs uh, prayer guide, actually, forgive me. First of all, thank you folks for singing. Thank you all. Thank you for the old ones once in a while. Thank you for recognizing your heritage. Uh, yes, good morning to everybody. And please, all of you watching, forgive me for not mentioning you immediately. We love you very much. God bless you. Thank you for joining us, those of you in the States and those of you literally around the world. Hope you had a wonderful week. Hope you will have a wonderful week. And uh, we do cherish you more than you know. Thank you for joining us. Um, before I go to the Voice of the Martyrs uh, prayer guide, I believe we're in, going to bring to your attention the nation of Turkey this week. Please, uh, you probably already know. I hope you already know this. Uh, please pray for Christian believers in the African nation of Nigeria. Persecution is horrific in Nigeria. Very violent. We can see that Islamist forces there are absolutely, if I may use the expression, hell-bent on wiping Christianity completely out of that country. And by full-blown violence. It is getting really ugly. But I know that there are some organizations here in the states that are, that are trying to help, try to uh, shake the pathetic United Nations awake and to take some sort of action, but we will see. But please pray for uh, Christians in Nigeria, those that remain, those that are uh, fleeing the country altogether for, uh, for safety's sake. Um, with that, let me bring to your attention... Um, Christian believers in the ancient land of Turkey. Uh, this should be all the more poignant to us as Christians because uh, where is Ephesus? That's right, the modern nation of Turkey. In fact, most of Paul's missionary journeys took place in the modern nation of Turkey. Some of the earliest churches ever established on planet Earth outside of Palestine are in the modern nation of Turkey. And they have made it to restricted status as far as persecution is concerned to voice of the martyrs. Despite the central role of Turkey's church in the New Testament, evangelical believers today number only thousands in this highly gospel-resistant Islamic country of more than 80 million. Turks are very proud of their country which is rapidly industrialized and modernized, yet their love for country is so fused with their love of Islam that it is assumed that all Turks are Muslim and it is inconceivable for a Turk to be anything else, to be a Christian. Uh, Christians are often characterized in the Turkish press as Western imports who don't belong. By God's grace, Christians will have some degree of freedom to worship together. Efforts have been underway for many years to strengthen and mature the leadership of the few Turkish churches, and Turkish believers boldly use all uh, <clears throat> major media platforms to share the gospel with their fellow Turks. Ongoing changes to Turkey's system of government, which includes growing Islamist sentiment, will likely increase the pressure on the small Christian community. Most Turks are proud Sunni Muslims and hold the faith as a core part of their nationalist identity, even if they aren't devout. So it's a nationalist cultural thing more than an actual 
religious faith for many. Believers face a range of challenges, most often from family, but extending to neighbors, employers, and the government. Pastors have been targeted in sophisticated assassination plots. In 2007, two Turkish believers and a missionary were brutally murdered. After a 12-year legal process, the five, 12-year legal process, the five killers were sentenced to life in prison. However, many believe the organizers behind the murders were not held accountable. There is a huge stigma against becoming a Christian in Turkey, and Christian converts from Islam face stiff opposition from all sides. Believers face opposition from their families, communities, and government. Many believers lose housing and jobs. Uh, you probably know of this gentleman because his name has actually made it into uh, the American press to an extent. American Christian Pastor Andrew Brunson, who was imprisoned in Turkey for two years, was released in October of 2018. Bibles can be legally printed in the country, but there are few distribution points. Many churches are involved in Bible distribution. However, Christians in remote areas of Turkey have less access to Bibles. Voice of the Martyrs distributes Bibles and works with local churches to support and encourage their efforts throughout Turkey. So please pray for our brothers and sisters who are in Turkey. It's very interesting. In Turkey, they love receiving the money from tourism. When Christians and folks from around the world visit the ancient Christian sites, but they don't want Christianity there. Doesn't the hypocrisy of humanity just absolutely astound you? Truly, truly amazing. But not that we don't have that sort of thing in America. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, one true living God, ruler of heaven and earth, who always has been, is now, and ever shall be. We lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in Nigeria and Turkey, to you this morning, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will burn brightly and spread like a living flame in Turkey and in Africa, in Nigeria and beyond. And as the early persecuted church in Jerusalem went to other parts of the Roman Empire and so the gospel spread, so those who may leave Turkey and those who are leaving Nigeria will take the gospel with them and the gospel will not die, it will grow. When the church is persecuted, the church always grows. May your perfect will be done in each of these nations that we bring before you in prayer every Sunday and in the lives of every believer in these nations that we pray for, that we have not met, but we will. And I pray for Christians to stand tall and strong around the entire world. And I pray for this Christian pastor who is being persecuted in Canada. That the gospel will burn bright through he and his wife and his congregation and his family. And that your perfect will shall be done. Help us all to be the witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ and our sphere of influence and our little neck of the woods, the world over, wherever we are. And may those efforts be blessed by you, be filled with the power of your word and your spirit, and win victory in Christ Jesus' name. I pray, however, that you will protect our brothers and sisters from violent harm. Ease their troubles, their pains, and their heartaches, and the difficult way in life that they are upon. I pray you have mercy on them. Please hear our imperfect prayers. 
ignorant prayers. I don't know their circumstances in great detail. But please accept our prayers in their behalf, that you will protect them, lead them, guide them, and that your divine plan will truly be accomplished in and through them. And help us to have the courage and bravery to walk in their footsteps whenever necessary, wherever necessary. Help us to help them, inspire us to help them, to give them the resources that they need, most certainly the prayers, anything, everything that they need to help them in their mission, to help them on their way. I pray for everyone who is listening throughout the states and who is listening in foreign nations abroad. Bless them and keep them. Thank you for their presence and for their willingness to watch and participate with us in the proclamation of your word. You know their situations and circumstances. We place them in your hands, O Father God, and lift them up in prayer. Please take care of them. And may the gospel of Christ triumph in their lives and in their families, and in their churches, in all ways. May the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified in them, and with everyone who is gathered here in person this morning, to hear you speak to them out of your word. We pray for those on our prayer list, for those who have difficult circumstances, illnesses, heal them, raise them up from their sick beds, return them to work and to their schedules, teach them the lessons that you want to them to learn, through every situation and circumstance. Those who are traveling today, keep them safe. Bring them back home safe and sound. And bless the teaching of your word this morning, wherever it goes out, that it will not be in vain, but it will change the minds and hearts and souls of those who hear, and that they in turn may spread your truth throughout a dark world, desperately yearning for the return of the great king, to make things right once and for all and for forever. May everything that is said and done here bring praise and honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our one and only rock and redeemer, you who truly are our only hope, but you who are more than hope enough for one and all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you join me please for the reading of the word of the Lord? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. We're completing the household codes today. And we will proceed to the spiritual warfare section of Paul's letter, uh, by which he concludes the letter to the ancient church in Ephesus. Instructions to slaves and masters. Of course, you can uh, argue, as these principles are sacred scripture, and they're binding for all believers the world over in any era of history until the Lord returns. Even though slavery is still in this world. I'm going to give you some shocking numbers in a few minutes at how many estimated people are still in slavery in this world. So this is certainly relevant and applicable. But you could also appreciably translate these principles into the employer or employee relationship here in America. But also I think in a broader sense you could apply these principles to anyone who serves under someone else, particularly on a daily basis. And you can apply these principles to anybody who does exercise some sort of authority on a daily basis over others. But initially, remember the first century AD, instructions to slaves and masters. Many English uh, translations try to candy coat this, and I wish they would not. The word is douloi, the word is doulos, it means slave. Slaves and masters. Okay. Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. 
Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing... <clears throat> Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up your threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. These are the words of the Lord and thanks be to God for them. Thanks, folks. You may be seated. And yes... These principles from the first century AD to this present hour, where these principles have been proclaimed and actually have been obeyed and appropriated into life and adhered to, it has ended slavery. And it has elevated life for everyone husband, wife, man, woman, child, boy, girl, slave, or servant, or employee. So today, we finally conclude Brother Paul's. Inspired household codes for life in a Christian family and a Christian home. And Paul ends by giving instructions for what was considered in the first century A.D. and today, folks who would be considered extended family members or members of the extended family or the extended household. Here are the relationship between slaves or workers or employees, servants and masters. Um, arguably then and now also employee and employer. Let me give you a few words from theologian Clinton Arnold from his commentary. I dearly love this brother. He's a wonderful theologian. He writes wonderful commentaries, but he's a great historian as well as a theologian. And as to the matter of, is this relevant for folks in the 21st century? Is this relevant for people in America? Absolutely. Let me share a few thoughts. Paul's instructions to slaves are not immediately, perhaps, and directly applicable to many people living today, especially in American and Western countries, because we, thank goodness, have abolished the socioeconomic institution of slavery. Nevertheless, by some estimates, there may be as many as 27 million people held as slaves throughout the world today. That is a terrifying and sobering figure. There are still an estimated 27 million people being held as slaves around the world today. And folks, there are women and girls, children, who are being abducted and held as slaves in the United States of America. If we really want to scream about slavery, we need to be screaming about that. The slavery that actually does still exist in this country and around the world and do something about that. To these people, Paul's instructions have direct relevance. But it is important for the rest of us not to skip over these slave passages in Scripture and assume that they have nothing to say to us, for, oh, they have plenty to say to us. How to interpret and apply the slave passages in the Bible to people where slavery no longer exists has been extensively discussed, as you may imagine, in commentaries. The problem of relating these texts to non-slavery countries or cultures is often made, frankly, more difficult than it needs to be. It is important to establish that none of Paul's instructions 
or accompanying reasons and motivations to slaves here in chapter 6 are solely contingent or dependent upon an ownership relationship. In other words, each of his commands can equally be applied to other forms of socioeconomic authority structures in the contemporary world. The recognition that Paul's comments are relevant to employer-employee relationships has, of course, long been understood by Bible commentators, preachers and teachers in the church. What is not sometimes recognized is the relevance of Paul's instructions to other structures of authority, where even less freedom is experienced, thus making them even more comparable to slavery. For example, what about prisoners? People in prison, they fit this description since they have forfeited their freedom completely for a period of time and are entirely under the authority of their guards and the prison warden. Even those who are free, but those who serve in the military, have voluntarily put themselves under a command structure that does somewhat restrict their freedom far more than a typical employer or employee relationship. There is, here's the key, there is a very strong Christ-centered focus that informs this passage, which we must never forget. Believers should do their work and serve their employers as if they were doing it directly for Jesus Christ himself. This is far more than just a hypothetical point that Paul is making because his appeal is rooted in the deep reality of someone's new life in Christ, someone's new identity in Christ, just as Paul boldly proclaims himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, all believers are now slaves of Jesus Christ and owe Him their ultimate allegiance and their full obedience. There's the key. Then and for 2,000 years and now and always until the great King, the Master of us all, returns. So, let's work our way back from the first century to our own a bit. From ancient Ephesus to our own time and place and how we are to apply these principles, and we are to do so, as of course, as mentioned before, this is sacred scripture, it's binding on all believers everywhere, in every age, slaves, be doulos, douloi, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, and in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. So of course, take notice of as to Christ, there's the key phrase of the whole passage. There's the key phrase expressed in slightly different ways in all of the household codes instructions to everybody in the Christian household. Husband, behave this way because of Christ. Wife, conduct yourself this way because of Christ. Children, live your, this, live your life this way because of Christ. Slaves, servants, employees, live your life this way, not because of your master, but because of Jesus Christ. Master, you are to behave and conduct yourself this way regarding your family and your slaves because of Jesus Christ. Always to Christ. As I've said, what, three, four, five times already in the past month or so, it's all about Jesus. Always. First and foremost, and ultimately. So, in the first century people who are in abject slavery, as well as paid servants in a Greco-Roman household, um, slaves, servants, even some full-time employees who lived upon the family property or they lived in the family home. Um, let me tell you a few things about, if this were Tuesday night, I could, I could 
really impact this for you at length. That's one of my biggest frustrations in the Sunday morning is time. Um, uh, to really take you back to the first century world, to the first people who were receiving this letter for the first time and work our way back from there because it is important to understand that. And yes, it does help somebody in 21st century America to better understand this and apply to their life. Even though, of course, for over 150 years we have not had slavery in this country. Slavery was a strange thing all over the world in all cultures and eras of history in which it was practiced. And it's very, very hard for us to immerse ourselves in that world and understand it. Uh, the thing you have to understand, I'm taking you back to the first century AD, it was ubiquitous, it was comprehensive, it was everywhere and a part of everything. It is all that these people knew. If you had said to any of these people, the slaves as well as the masters, that there should be a world in which there is no slavery, they would look at you like you are a man or woman from Mars from another planet. It was all they knew. Even the slaves. Even slaves own slaves. As bizarre as that sounds. And I'll give you an example of that in a minute from Ephesus itself at this time. Um, it was the very fabric of society and economy and, and, and culture, sadly enough. Ever since sinful man fell, and lifted his hand against another, we have had slavery in this world. There's 27 million slaves in this world now. And regrettably, we need to fight against it always, of course, but that's the way it's always going to be somewhere in this world until the great king returns and ends evil and oppression completely and forever. Right? Um, it wasn't racial slavery. Uh, absolutely anybody and everybody, every skin, color, culture, and nationality in the known world at that time was a slave. And most of the ways in which you uh, acquired slaves was by conquest. That's usually how the Romans acquired thousands of slaves, is from people from a conquered country that became a Roman province. Yes, you did have some slave traders who would kidnap and capture people. Uh, sometimes the way that they murdered their unwanted infants in their time was sometimes not only to abort babies, but a born baby would just simply be taken out on the highways and byways and thrown away and left to the elements of the wild animals. And sometimes the slave traders would come along, oh, there's one, nab him, and we'll sell him or her as a slave. Now later on, the Christians distinguished themselves by finding these babies and taking them in and raising them as their own children. Now, uh, slaves could be teachers. They could be clerks. They weren't just field hands or house servants. They could be uh, very well-educated people. In fact, uh, a lot of masters, more beneficent ones, al allowed um, their slaves a certain modest amount of freedom in travel. They could have their own part-time job in which they made money on the side. Some of them were so valuable to the master, the better educated ones. Uh, they could make, they would actually be paid a small sum from the master or the mistress. Uh, a lot of times these people would achieve uh, their freedom uh, in their adulthood, sometimes in their childhood. There was a legal process that you had to go through for that. Sometimes these people did not want to be totally freed from uh, the household that they formerly served because it would make them a lot more vulnerable. So a lot of them, even though they received their emancipation, they would like to stay with the household or family or the estate as a paid employee, even if it was a very modest sum. Because this was a dangerous world, and they didn't want just to be turned out and, and made vulnerable. 
um, a lot of times they would live on the family estate or on the family property uh, in houses built for them. Sometimes they would live actually inside the home with the family. And you didn't have to be a rich person to own slaves. Uh, there were uh, folks of a very modest income own their own slaves for whatever reason. And uh, as I said to you before, it's very bizarre. Even slaves could and did own their own slaves. In fact, I'll give you uh, an example of this from Ephesus. The folks to whom this letter was first sent in the first century A.D., from uh, archaeological research, a tremendous amount has been conducted in Ephesus, and historical record there, um, we find, <clears throat> interesting situation, you may or may not know, I think I may have told you this before, because even the temple in Jerusalem uh, served as a sort of a bank for the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. But many pagan temples in the first century A.D. were repositories for wealth, and they served... Uh, something as a bank or a loaning or lending institution. And a lot of the wealth of a given province or town would be placed and stored in those temples. Well, we know from history that about this time, there were slaves who were serving in pagan temples in Ephesus who were pilfering the public treasury there to buy and support their own slaves. And the imperial Roman governor found out about this, and as you can imagine, he was not happy about it. And so he passed edicts and decrees to try to put an end to this. So folks, that's how comprehensive and ubiquitous slavery was at this time. And Paul has to address this. The Lord has to address this. And he has had to address this, what? For the past 2,000 years. And does now. Paul does not specifically denounce it. That is, in overt terms. He's often accused of that. That is an erroneous accusation. If you read this text and his other texts regarding slavery, if you really study it and you take these principles to their logical, reasonable conclusion, which we all should do, he is teaching that slavery is morally wrong and it should be done away with. And it is wrong in a Christian household and home. And wherever these principles have been applied, slavery has, in time, gone away. So, as to Christ, there is the key, of course, to everything. Paul's instructions, beginning with slaves and masters, would be considered quite necessary and needed in the first century A.D., but exactly what he says is going to turn things upside down a bit, and inside out, as we say. So, we have a lot of evidence for this from ancient history that that began to take place in the Roman Empire as Christianity spread. Let me give you a another interesting piece of evidence for slaves living with their masters under their same roofs and how their relationships with a kind master could be very, very close, almost family-like. That's not excusing slavery. It's a terrible thing. Some masters could be absolutely just demonically cruel, of course. But some masters, people are people. It's very interesting. And some families and slaves, even in that very bizarre and odd and wrong institution, they could become very, very deep friends and almost consider one another as extended family members. There have been graves or tombs, family burial plots, private cemeteries, 
that have been found in ancient Ephesus and other places in which the slaves were buried or interred right alongside their masters and their master's family members with very touching epitaphs written on their graves or on their gravestones. Uh, if you folks who know history at all, there's two very famous Roman authors, naturalists, historians, Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Elder. Well, Pliny the Younger, who fancied himself a very beneficent man, he wrote, and as, again, for we modern Americans, this is very hard for us to believe or, or, or really grasp. Pliny wrote that the Roman household should give the slave a country where he has no country. The Roman master should give the slave a type of citizenship within the home when otherwise they had none. And Pliny, of course, boasted that he was a very beneficent master toward his slaves. Now notice, Paul appeals to the slave first, not the master. And he speaks to the slave directly. As noted before in the other household codes, yes, I believe I can say that truly would have been revolutionary for the time period. All of the household codes given by the pagans deals with the husband, the father, the paterfamilias, the head of the family, he and he alone. And it was all to filter down by way of the paterfamilias. Not here. The Lord, by way of Paul, deals with everybody directly. And he deals with the subordinate first, placing them on an equal with the master, saying, therefore, that they are people of equal worth and value. And in the eyes of God as a human being, as an image bearer of God, as a Christian, they are equal and on equal standing. And remember and never forget, this is a book written for Christians. It's not an evangelistic book per se. Now, parts of it you can use for evangelism. But this is a book written to Christians and for Christians. And to how Christians are to live out a Christian household. And therefore be a witness and an example, as we say, before the pagans. Slaves first. It's radical. It was never done then. Paul's appeal for, to slaves, doulos, note, then appeal again to Christian slaves and Christian masters. Paul appeals to slaves to be obedient to their masters. He qualifies this appeal. Have you ever read this in depth? You're going to today. If you notice carefully, he appeals to them six different ways. There's six different ways, if you look at this carefully, in which he says slaves can live this out based on their new life, based on their new status, based on ultimately belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this would be considered, yes, a bit revolutionary for the time, as Paul addresses slaves in the church and the Christian family as their own person. This is radical. He is addressing them as their own person, directly, not as a piece of chattel or property. He is addressing them as what? A free moral agent, a person who is fully capable of thinking for themselves, making decisions for themselves, and living and acting with moral responsibility, thereby a person of worth and value, not a person of merely monetary value as a piece of property. This was absolutely unprecedented in the ancient world. It is remarkable that Paul cares for and addresses these people at all or so it would have been considered. And why is that? Why is that? It's because God cares. 
It's because Christ cares. Therefore, the apostle cares. And Christ's work is ultimately to set all people free. Free physically, free mentally, free emotionally, most important of all, spiritually. As the old theologians would say, the Son of God came to free us from the world, the flesh, and the devil, all forms of slavery. He came to grant us the greatest freedom of all, of course, spiritual freedom, eternal freedom. The fact that Paul does address slave the, slaves this way says something else to you, if you really think about it. The, what, because Paul addresses slaves this way, this tells you how they were treated in the church, in the Christian community, which was radical, which was revolutionary. The fact Paul addresses these folks this way demonstrates that these slaves were accepted, they were loved, they were valued, they were worthwhile members, equal members of the church, the Christian community, as we would say. So Paul addresses their what? If you look closely, he's addressing their attitudes. He's addressing their motivations. Often, well, he's offering them really a better way, a better perspective, a better outlook, a better point of view on life and their present circumstance situation and of course it's all based on Jesus himself not the master it's based on Jesus take your eyes off your master put your eyes on Jesus that's what he's saying after all these poor people as slaves they would probably be expected to behave in a way that was not at all Christian or pleasant or positive due to their obvious situation and history tells us that this was the case. Folks, if you read Greco-Roman literature from the time period, these slave owners were complaining constantly and chronically about the bad behavior of their slaves. Well, go figure. Little wonder, huh? It's what you would expect from people held in slavery in a dark, sinful world. But what does Paul write to Christians? Be obedient to your masters according to the flesh. Now, you may have a slightly different translation. What does that of the flesh mean? I'm in the New American Standard Bible, it's slightly arcane because it's a word for word equivalent from the Greek. Be obedient to your masters according to the flesh. That's what you and I would simply perhaps say as be obedient to your earthly master. Be obedient to your earthly master who is a mere mortal flesh and blood human being. What is he implying? You have a greater master. First and foremost, you have a master who is not merely flesh and blood. It is the Son of God, who is human and divine, the cosmic master, the master of us all. I am assuming that you obey him. But I want you also to hang on to your hats. Obey your earthly master, your mere flesh and blood master as well. So the first attitude Paul commends is that they obey with respect and fear. That might sound a bit harsh. Or that they obey with fear and trembling. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. Elsewhere, Paul has commanded all believers to what? Work out or exercise or demonstrate your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a phrase he uses elsewhere. This is the way we're all encouraged to serve and obey God for reasons that are very good and should be obvious. But Paul is not saying that he wants these slaves to live in abject terror of their masters, because some of these poor people had to, as you can imagine. What does he mean by fear and trembling with the earthly master? Well, again, he's not saying that slaves, or employees for that matter, 
should live in some sort of foreboding dread or abject terror of their master or their employer. That's not what he's saying. Many poor slaves, again, probably had to live this way. Paul's rather instructing slaves to do this, to serve their earthly master with what we would call good, healthy respect. Serve your master with good, healthy, genuine respect and fear as in fear of being punished for wrongdoing. If you serve and obey your master, a Christian slave, hopefully a Christian master, with sincere respect, then you have no fear of being punished for wrongdoing. Don't commit any wrongdoing for which you should fear punishment, right? Now, second of all, notice slaves should serve and obey or respond to their masters with what? Now, this is going to be more difficult. I want you to do it sincerely, he says. Don't fake it. That's what you always do all the time. I want you to do this out of the sincerity of your heart. That's going to be tougher. This simply means that they, the servants of the slaves, should have a heart that really is guiltless, that's innocent, of any kind of sinful, harmful, or improper motivation or behavior. Have purity in your heart. Have goodwill in your attitude and your intent. Do not serve out of low or base motives or evil intent. Thirdly, and this is the most important of all, do this for Jesus' sake. Obey as you would obey Christ. Obey as you should obey Christ. If you have to, put your master in the background and you put Jesus in the limelight. Put Him in their place. Obey them as you would obey Him. Respond to them as you would respond to Him. Here's the key. Do all for Jesus' sake. All is to be done for Christ in a Christian household. Behave this way out of your ultimate love and loyalty to Jesus, the Master of us all. All for Christ. Wake up, folks. Wake up. You all need to hear this. I know you have a boring messenger, but you need to hear this. And yes, you folks out there. Christ is always our ultimate and final motivator. This, of course, is a great example of the application of the principle that Paul teaches in another letter. Colossians 3.17. What does he say? Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Husband, all for Christ. Wife, all for Christ. Slave, all for Christ. Master, all for Christ. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obey Christ. He is far above and beyond and more important than your merely human master or your merely human supervisor at work that you cannot stand. Never forget who you really belong to, who we all really belong to. There's a dear Christian brother. I've missed him ever since the day he went to the Father's house in the church that we used to go to in Kentucky, Tex. And he used to say to his children, every time they left the house, remember who you belong to. Wherever you go, remember who you belong to. Remember who and what you really are. And that's what Paul is reminding us of here. Never forget who you really belong to, who we all belong to. Serve with sincerity, he says. It's haplotes in the original Greek. It's a great word. It means honesty, frankness, openness, candor, integrity, fidelity. It, when you see what Paul is saying, 
to fulfill your earthly obligations, if those obligations are not evil or immoral, that is in fact service to God and to the Lord. Verse 6, not by way of eye service. He knows that's the way everybody's doing this. Don't do this just for eye service, for show, to please your master, to get them off your back, to keep them from breathing down your neck. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Forget about being a slave to them. You're a slave to Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Well, let me give you this translation quickly. Not outwardly as those who merely please people, but as slaves of Christ. Here's his thought. As slaves of Christ, you must perform the will of God. Willingly, with good intent. And serve, here, here, serve as for the Lord, not for people. Forget about the people. Serve as for the Lord. Serve for Christ. Now, I found, this, I found this interesting. Many Bible scholars believe that Paul invented a word here. What you and I translate as eye service or people pleasing is ophthalmodulia. Ophthalmodulia. Does that sound somewhat familiar? Have you ever heard of ophthalmology? O-P-T-H-A-L, ophthalmodulia. It has to do with vision, seeing the eye. And here Paul writes ophthalmodulia. We believe he invented this word because this word isn't found anywhere else. It means simply, well, according to Paul, work for service rendered only under someone's watchful eye. <laughs> only when someone's looking. So here are the fourth and fifth ways that a slave or servant can improve good sincere service as a follower of Christ. It's given in terms of contrasting conduct, isn't it? Contrasting behavior and attitude. He gives you a negative and then he gives you a positive. How many times do we find that in the Bible? We've had that before. Here's a negative. Don't do this. Get rid of that. But there's no void or vacuum left. When you get rid of the negative, you must always fill it with a positive. And that's what he does here. So remember, it's all based on the new life, on the new identity in Jesus. Christian slaves serve their human masters, not merely to earn points or stay out of trouble. That's what he's saying here. But from pure, sincere motives. And I was reminded several times of this little saying. Have you ever heard this? And I'm paraphrasing it, so if I butcher it, please forgive me. You really are what you do when no one's watching. Or the sum total of who and what you really are, it's what you do when nobody's looking. When nobody's watching. That's what Paul is saying here. You could apply that. What are you doing when nobody's watching? On the job, what are you doing when nobody's watching? Right? I think there's some truth in that. The sum total of what we are as a person is what we do when, when, when nobody's watching us. But of course, never forget the scriptural truth. There is omniscient, omnipotent being, omnipresent being who does watch. Always. And he does know, always. And everything that is said and done, public or private, is duly noted. And Paul makes that point right here. Believers who are servants, who are slaves, employees, should be motivated to serve their masters and employers well because of their ultimate service to Christ, whom we all should be serving from pure motives. We are, as Paul says, douloi Christu, a slave of Christ. Right? Never forget you belong to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's the one that you should ultimately be serving, even as you earn your paycheck. And he is infinitely above any human master. They pale or do not matter in comparison. Christian slaves really serve the greatest master of them all. And he's a good master. He's a kind master. He's a loving master. 
He's a beneficent master. He loves his slaves so much he died for them and elevated them to the status of brothers and sisters and children of God. This is the kind of slavery you do want to belong to and the only kind of slavery you really want to belong to, a slave of Christ. And so the slave who is a Christian, their status, their position will eventually be honor. And it is really all derived from belonging to Jesus, not any human master. Now notice the phrase, doing the will of God. Slaves of Christ, employees of Christ, doing the will of God. This is the first and highest priority, doing the will of God. This is demanded of all believers, whether you're rich or poor, slave or free. Always do the will of God, whether you're slave or free, that's his point, and do it from the heart. Another tall order, perhaps, is you and I would translate it, you do it wholeheartedly, or you do this heart and soul, as we would say. The words literally in the Greek mean from the soul because he uses the word cardia, cardiac, having to do with the heart. Metaphorically, here meaning the very core of your being, the very core of a person. That's where he wants you to live this out. And as I like to say so many times, do you see what he's saying there? From the core of your being, from your heart, I want you to live this way and behave this way. I've said it a million times. I'll say it a million times more. The Bible teaches us that we are to live our lives from the inside out. You live your life from the inside out. That's exactly what he's asking us to do here. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord, not to men. How's that? For short and sweet and straightforward, but really pretty radical. Here, simply put, Paul's appeals to slaves and servants to serve with a good attitude. Again, it's first and foremost divine, design, uh, defined by considering one's work and service done expressly or directly for Jesus himself. Again, far more important than a human master. Christ is always to be the chief motivator. Have you noticed that? All through these household codes, he's the motivator. He's the chief motivation. And now Paul adds, with goodwill. He uses the word euonia. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Euonia, which means to show favor to somebody, to show benevolence to somebody, to extend goodwill or intent to somebody. It's the only time this word appears in the Bible. It's often explained as, well, my Greek New Testament dictionary says you can best describe this word as a good positive attitude exhibited in a relationship. A good positive attitude exhibited in a relationship. Here, even the relationship of slaves to masters, yes. These attitudes and relationships are to characterize what? A Christian household. A Christian household and everybody in it should be having relationships which are of good will. That's what he's saying. Verse 8, moving to our conclusion. Knowing, or therefore, be act this way because he assumes you know, he wants you to know, he presumes you know, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. This is one of the most wonderful verses in the, in the letter and certainly in this passage. It's a wonderful verse. How many times have we read this and we blow over it? We probably should read it every day that we live. It's hope for the next world, folks. Hope for the eternal kingdom and hope for life there. Yes, he's talking about real reward, real recompense, real compensation for life in the life to come, the world to come. 
Can you imagine what that meant to somebody in abject slavery in the first century A.D.? And in any other century in which a person had to live under slavery, this is their ultimate hope that they clinged to every day that they lived, whether they were freed or not. Hopefully every day that they lived until they stepped into the next world. Don't despair. Don't give up. Everything that you are doing, large and small, and everything in between is duly noted by God Himself, and it will be rewarded in the next life in the next world. And we had better take that seriously for good or ill, and often we don't. You see, Paul offers the ultimate motivation. Promise for reward and service, well rendered in this life, will affect you in the life to come. If we serve well ultimately for Jesus' sake, there is final assurance of God's blessing and reward. And I believe he, he probably is speaking for this life to a degree. You can be rewarded this side of life. But most certainly he means eternity. And notice Paul, let me bring this word to your attention because you do not get this in the English like you do in the Greek. The word that we translate as knowing is eidotes in the Greek. And eidotes is a stronger word in the Greek for knowing. Eidotes means to know with absolute confident certainty. That's what Paul is saying. He assumes you know with absolute confident certainty of what you have coming to you in the next life, in the next world. Contingent to a degree upon what you do in this life, this side of eternity. Paul assumes Christians know with absolute certainty this truth, or he wants you to know. He reminds us of eternal reward for whatever we do for Jesus' sake, great or small, small slave or free, and yes, Paul is saying to these servants and these slaves, put it together, think logically, please think logically with me, and put these things together. What logical conclusion can you come to by what he's saying here? He's saying if you, what you do in this life matters, and you'll be rewarded in the next life, you do matter. You're not just a piece of property. You really do matter. What you do matters. You will be rewarded. You and all that you do is noticed, duly noticed and recorded by God Himself. Noted by the Master, the Master of us all, Jesus Himself personally. And He will reward you. He cares. Notice Paul says, whatever good thing each one does, absolutely nothing whatsoever escapes his notice. Every single good deed, large or small, that is done will be taken into account by the Lord, by Christ Himself, and it will be rewarded. That's an amazing thing. It's also a bit scary. Or can be. But it is amazing. How's that for motivation? There you have it. One of the ultimate motivators for each and every one of us, for all of us. And Paul says, receive back. That's a strong word in the original language, too. What we translate as receive back or get back is just one word. It's komizo. And komizo specifically refers to something received as a reward. Something given to somebody as a reward or some sort of compensation for something you experienced or something you endured or something that you went through. That's amazing. He's bald-faced saying, you are going to be rewarded or you're going to get compensation. 
or recompense for this life. Once again, how's that for motivation? It's exactly the same word he uses in 2 Corinthians 5.10 when he speaks of believers' rewards at the day of judgment. Exact same words. So you see, the Lord telling us by way of Paul, he's giving Christians slaves, servants, okay, workers and employees, if you will. He's giving you the big picture, isn't he? How many times when we started this book have I told you he's giving you the big picture in this book? He's reminding you of the big picture. He's giving you the big picture, the eternal perspective on your life and your service and everything you do. You can be assured of final eternal reward and compensation for all you do and endure if it is all given over to Christ, if it is all for Him ultimately, if it is all dedicated to Him. Never take your eyes off the prize. That's what he's saying. Never. Concluding verse. And it's a loaded verse. By giving the masters only one verse, don't think for the proverbial split second that he's letting masters off the hook. Oh, no, he is not. He pecks quite a bit in this one verse. It's actually quite strong in the original language. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's also something of a warning. In fact, somebody, a slave master, might interpret this perhaps as something of a thinly veiled threat. But I think we should look upon it as a command and a warning. And masters do the same things to them. Do the same things to the slaves. Treat the slaves as well as I'm instructing the slaves to treat you. And give up your threatening them or your abuse, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Fairly simple and straightforward, isn't it? Should be. Instructions for masters, all in one verse. Very important verse of instruction indeed. Quite significant. And yes, this would have truly been considered radical in the first century A.D. I think when slave masters first read this, they probably were a bit rattled, as we would say. Even Christian masters. And I think this has rattled slave owners afterwards throughout the past 2,000 years somewhere in the world. And it always should. This is a command, and it is something of a warning. And yes, supervisor, manager, employer, this is for you too. This is for you too. I don't mean to be flippant or cute when I say this is for the Ebenezer Scrooges of the world. And Dickens' novel does say the, that man as an employer has the power to make lives better or miserable. That's the point. Tremendous responsibility. Remember, Master. Remember, Employer. You are to treat them well. You are to treat them with compassion, with dignity, with decency, and respect. Because for you as well, eternity is in view. We will all stand before the Divine Judge and answer for what we have done. And answer for what we did not do. What we should have done. And notice Paul writes, do the same things to them. You treat them well. And treat them well for Jesus' sake, ultimately. Because they are under your authority, you are responsible. That is a responsibility. And treat them well, yes, for Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake, ultimately. 
And remember the Christian slave, never forget he's writing to Christians. So this really ratchets up the importance of this command even more so. Remember, that Christian slave is your brother. That Christian slave is your sister. That Christian slave is your sibling in Jesus Christ. They are a part of you. They are one with you in a deep and profound way. And they are absolutely your equal in the eyes of God. As a redeemed person, as a created image bearer of God, thereby a person of meaning and worth and value. We all slave or free, master or servant. We all have one Lord and master. The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine judge himself. And as Paul reminds us, look out. Never forget. He is absolutely fair and absolutely impartial towards all of us. Never ever forget that fundamental fact and that fundamental truth. Boy, that's important for our day too, isn't it? We all complain that what we call justice in America is just becoming an absolute joke, a travesty. The justice system in America, it's an absolute hash is being made of it. And to a degree, we will not get probably the absolute justice that everyone needs or even deserves this side of eternity. But brothers and sisters, it's coming. It's on its way. And that's what this man is saying. There is a divine judge. And if you read elsewhere in the New Testament, God Almighty the Father has handed the right to judge the universe in the hand of the Son. And gentle Jesus, meek and mild, will return. Court will, will be absolute, impartial, fair, just, and equitable justice. Every evil person and every evil act will be punished. And every good deed, done humbly, whether large or small, ultimately for Jesus' sake, will be compensated, will be recompensed be rewarded. Live for that fact. It is a fact like the weather we're having today is a fact. Never forget it. We're all slaves of Jesus Christ. He is the master of us all. So adopt these godly attitudes, whether slave or free, whether employee or employer. In the end, we as Christians are all one together in the kingdom of God. Eternity here is always, always in view. Never take your eyes off the prize. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that Brother Paul gives us by way of your divine instructions to him. I hope this helps the folks here in dealing with their daily duties or whatever authority structure that they may work under. Or I hope that it helps those who do exercise authority over others and are concerned about it and, and want to do the right thing. And I do hope this message goes out throughout the world that really will help people who really are being oppressed or abused or exploited in some way to help them to get through this. And I do hope that this warning goes out
to anyone who would be attempted to exploit and abuse or oppress others, that the day of divine justice is coming. And please, Lord, I do hope that all who are in Christ Jesus, this will encourage them to keep their eyes on the prize in increasing darkening days. That absolutely nothing we do, no matter how menial or trivial it may seem, it is being recorded. And it will be rewarded. I need this badly. And I think there's other folks out there that need this badly too. Please help us to appropriate these things wisely and well in our life and lead accordingly. In the blessed and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.